All right, well, we're going to be today in John chapter 5. This is a passage of Scripture right on the heels of what we had studied last Sunday. We're working through John's gospel together. A gospel means good news. And this is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This is John's eyewitness testimony of what happened around the birth and life of Jesus and eventually his crucifixion and his resurrection. And today we're going to be taking communion to remember that sacrifice that Christ paid for us. So to prepare our hearts for that today, let's go to John 5 as we hear some of Jesus' teaching. This is a a, a difficult passage of Scripture as Jesus is responding directly to the religious leaders who are opposing him more and more uh, vehemently as the story unfolds. Prior to chapter 5, there was just some skepticism some questioning over who Jesus is and what he's been doing. But now in chapter 5, there's a nasty twist to where the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, begin to decide, we need to kill this guy for what he's been doing. And at the beginning of chapter 5, we read the story of a healing of a man who had been lying paralyzed his entire life for 30-plus years, at 38 years there at the pool of Bethesda, And Jesus showed up on a Sabbath and healed him and said, get up, take your mat, and go. You're healed. And so the Pharisees, you'd think they would celebrate and be excited that a man has been healed, a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years is now able to walk. And this thing he's been lying on, he's now carrying. And he's delivered and he's free. But instead they begin to uh, look at Jesus with greater anger because he's violated the Sabbath law of that you're not supposed to carry heavy things on the Sabbath. And so they're looking for these nitpicky ways to oppose Jesus. But then we see in verse 18, it's not just that he was violating the Sabbath. Verse 18, right before we get to the passage we're going to read together, you can look ahead. There in your Bible it says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So it was those two reasons that caused the Jews to decide we need to kill Jesus. Number one, he's breaking the Sabbath. Number two, he's a threat. He's making himself equal with God. He's claiming that he has authority. And he's a threat to our own power. And so these are the two reasons that events begin to move toward the cross. And so as Jesus now responds to the Pharisees who are opposing him, there's two big sections we're going to look at here at the end of chapter 5. I would, I would summarize it in this way. The first section is Jesus saying to the Pharisees and to all of us, all authority is God's authority. And the second section is Jesus continuing along that same thought to the, to the people who were opposing him here in the story in John 5 and any, anyone here today who needs this reminder. It's this. All glory is God's glory. And so let's read now as we hear Jesus' own words as he responds to the Jewish religious leaders who were opposing him and looking for a way to kill him. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. 
So far, the picture that Jesus is painting for these Jewish religious leaders is that of a father who's mentoring his son. You know, and Jesus himself, he grew up the son of a carpenter. Joseph was a carpenter by trade. Jesus learned the skills of the trade. And you picture a dad who's doing a good job, patiently working with his little boy and saying, hey, hey son, I love you. I want, I want you to know the skills that I know. I want to pass those on to you. I want you to be able to use your hands in the way I have. And that's the picture that Jesus is painting in response to the religious leaders questioning his authority and his identification as the Son of God and all that that means. He's saying, you know, this is not me in my own authority. It's God's authority. And I'm only doing what I've seen my dad doing. I'm only following his example. All authority is derived from God. All authority is really ultimately God's authority. But there's greater things coming than what you've even seen to this point. This harkens back to the beginning of John's gospel, that prologue that we read several weeks ago in John chapter 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we're, we're getting a picture of this paradox and mystery once again where Jesus and God are both one and yet they're both unique. There's two persons but one nature. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Through him everything was made. There's nothing that has been made that was made without him. He's the word of God. So there's this, theologians call this a functional subordination functional subordination. A couple big words there, right? So what that means, it's not that Jesus is actually subordinate to the Father because he's equal to God. It's not that we have two gods here. Don't be confused. It's not that there's a big God and a little God. But in function, Jesus submits himself to the Father. Jesus is the picture of what appropriate submission to authority looks like. And that's why a passage like Ephesians 5, talking about marriage, should not be so difficult for us, right? That's a challenging passage to husbands and wives where it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave up his life for her. So guys are like, oh yeah, we're going to sacrifice, got to follow Jesus' example, be willing to die, lay down our lives. But then there's the part for the wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. And in our culture, we bristle against that. Because it looks like subordination. And yet Jesus sets the picture and the stage for what that subordination looks like. It's a submission that's willingly given. It's out of love. It's out of deference. It's not, you know, the, the, like what we think of in our culture, some guy with a wife beater on, T-shirt, saying, uh, hey, wife, you know, I want you to do this. Oh, yes, sir, sir. That's not at all the picture that Jesus is portraying. And in his own example, he's, he's demonstrating this father-son, beautiful, harmonious, loving, appropriate relationship in which the father has all authority and yet he delegates that authority to the son. He teaches the son how to walk in that path and then the son exercises that authority that originates with the father. And he goes on to, to describe what are these greater things that you're going to see yet that the Father is showing the Son, that God is showing Jesus, and that you are going to marvel over. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. 
there's some keys that only God has. He doesn't share those keys with anybody else. One of the keys is the key of creation. God is the one who creates all things. There's nothing made apart from God himself. Another one of those keys is the key of resurrection. That's not something you and I can do. There's no doctor, there's no medical advancement that can do that resurrection maneuver that only the key that God holds can do. And yet God takes that authority that he possesses alone and he gives it to the Son. And there's a resurrection expectation in what Jesus is proclaiming to the Pharisees. Guys, you're hung up on the fact that a a man who was paralyzed has gotten up off the ground and he's walking around on a Sabbath day. And you're frustrated and aggravated by that. And I'm telling you that my authority comes from God alone and you want to kill me because of that. Let me tell you, this is about resurrection. And what you've just seen is nothing compared to what is yet to come. As the Father raises the dead, so also the Son will give life. The Son holds those same keys in his hand. Verse 22, the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. This is a little bit in contrast to uh, chapter 3, right? The verse that you've seen held up on those cardboard signs at every hockey game that's ever been played. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The very next verse that we probably don't have on the cardboard sign at the hockey game. John 3.17, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world would be saved. So the plan is a salvation plan, not a condemnation plan. And yet here we're seeing a a bit of a contrast in chapter 5. Judgment is not exercised by the Father because although he has that authority, he gives that to the Son. Part of the Son's salvation mission includes judgment. Now that's different from condemnation, isn't it? Really, condemnation comes with the motivation of you are going to suffer, you're going to be put down, you're going to be brought low. And that wasn't Jesus' plan in coming. His whole plan was to bring salvation, to bring hope, to bring new life, to take people who'd been lying on a mat for 38 years and enable them to walk and to stand. So grab a hold of that. You know, when when we get into the religious mode, we end up acting like the Pharisees. Maybe you've been beat up by religion. Lists of do's and don'ts. Rules. The attempt to earn your own salvation, right? If I can just be a little bit better, try a little harder. And that's pretty appealing to us. We were trained in that way from a young age. Oh, Susie, you put your toys away. You're a good girl. Mommy loves you. Oh, Billy, you got a B on your paper? Not happy about that. A little bit of love just left the room. And so we've been hardwired in this way from birth, and we begin to think that's how God looks at us. And there is some attraction to this religious world that the Pharisees have created. Don't make the same mistake that that I made early in my Christian life where I could easily skip over any passages that were directed toward the Pharisees. Well, I'm, I'm not Jewish, and I don't live in the first century. There's nothing in here for me. I can just skip right over this. I think it's in here for a reason, like there's a caution to each of us and a warning that we can have these same pharisaical traits in our own hearts. This isn't just for some Jewish religious leaders that lived in the first century. These are 
red-letter words for us here today to grab a hold of. And Jesus is reminding them that part of the authority that the Father gives the Son is the authority to judge, to bring judgment. What's the purpose of that judgment? Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Okay, that rings true in your house, I would believe, right? Has it ever happened where you sent one kid to tell the other kid a message? Hey, can you run upstairs and tell your brother he forgot to mow the lawn? Have him, have, tell him dad says, come on down and, and get that lawnmower running because it's, there's some gray storm clouds rolling in. And so the, the message is delivered probably not in the same tone that you had sent the emissary, you know, there's probably a little bit, Dad says, get your butt down here right now. No, that's not, back off, you know. And yet that message gets conveyed and it, it, it is spoken with the authority of the one who sent the message, right? Now what happens if the recipient of that message decides to disregard it? Is the other son only rejecting the brother? Or in fact, is is the father who sent the message being rejected in that case, right? Well, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a gamble. You know, I think dad's too lazy to actually come up a flight of stairs himself and tell me I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hedge my bets here and see if I can wait a little bit longer and put off this task. And yet Jesus is saying the authority that belongs to God alone is given to the son and you must honor the son in order to honor the Father, because the the Father has sent the Son. And this is the very point of problem for the Pharisees, because they're rejecting not just the one that God has sent, the representative of God, God himself in flesh. They're ultimately rejecting the God that they've been worshipped throughout all of their history as a people. All their Old Testament studying, you know, they've, they've memorized things from the Old Testament. They've been reading that. They've gone through all the Jewish history. They've got lists of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs. And every I is dotted. Every T is crossed. They know exactly what Sabbath observation should look like. And yet somehow they've missed the great point that all leads to Jesus as the authority of God in the flesh, the bringer of judgment, and they fail to honor him. And there is hope in this message of condemnation that Jesus brings in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, those two go hand in hand, hearing and believing. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. There's the salvation plan. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There's the resurrection hope. There, there's, some, there's multiple layers of meaning here in what Jesus is saying about resurrection in these verses. You know, number one, there's a big thing that's going to happen soon that's going to cause everyone to marvel. It's that the Son himself is going to be raised to new life. Get ready. Any, any doubt you have, any skepticism, any opposition to the message of Jesus, that's all going to get cleared up on an Easter Sunday morning in your very near future. And all of a sudden, you're going to have to reinterpret everything you've seen and heard and believed and all your expectations because you're going to be dealing with a man who got up from the dead. And that changes everything. 
But it's not just that. There is a resurrection people who are looking forward to the end of time when Jesus will say with all the authority that God has given him, get up and all the dead will rise to a judgment of either salvation or of judgment and condemnation. The resurrection of judgment. We'll see that in the verses yet to come. So there is resurrection hope for the people of God today. As we look to Jesus, the risen Savior, that's our future, but it's also where we live today in light of the true King, acknowledging Him as the authority of God, submitting to Him. And yet the temptation is that we behave like the Pharisees who run around trying to prove who's got more authority. We take authority to ourselves to a radical level in today's culture, right? Where even truth itself is no longer apart from me. It's internally defined truth. You know, we have a phrase for that in in America today. What I identify as, what I self-identify as. And that's a picture of where our culture has gone that says there's no God who has authority. Each radically autonomous human being is an authority unto himself or herself. Truth is what you define it to be. Your truth may not be my truth. I am the authority in my own world of what's true and what is to be believed and pursued. How dare you impose your views on me? Are you trying to exert your authority over me? That's anti-American. We have freedom. And it's become really a, a form of anarchy. So, so to submit to God as the true authority helps us to understand our relationships with one another. It helps us to make sense of this crazy world in which we live. There is only one who has authority. He does delegate that authority, as Jesus says, to the Son. And so you honor the, the Father as you honor the Son. Elsewhere, in Paul's letters, there's other instructions about submitting to the other authorities that exist in our world who all have a derived authority from God. Submit to leaders, to those in positions of influence. Uh, You know, in, in the New Testament, it talks about slaves obeying their masters. I'd say our modern equivalent of that would be employees. Submit to your employers. There's children obeying your parents. And then finally, there in Ephesians 5, the passage I referenced earlier, submit to one another. And really, that only happens in a, in a beautiful, harmonious way as we recognize that all authority is God's authority. The purpose of all this is not to bring judgment and condemnation, but that is a part of bringing salvation. It's the flip side of the coin. At the time of resurrection, some get the good news that you have honored Christ as king. And now there awaits you and eternal glory, eternal life with him. And then there will be the bad news for others that despite the years that you were given on this earth, you persisted in serving yourself as the ultimate supreme authority. You didn't acknowledge the king who is actually the king and now there's bad news. There awaits you a resurrection of judgment. And here, here's the, the, the final word on this in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here 
when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. There in verse 25, we're getting a picture of that already and not yet kingdom of God. It's an already kingdom of God. Jesus is already here on the throne. There's new life today. It's also the not yet kingdom of God. It's we're awaiting the full culmination of that kingdom when King Jesus returns. There in verse 26, we hear about life in himself. It's something God has. It's also something Jesus has. Life in himself. It's not something you and I have. According to the Bible, we don't have life in ourselves. We're in the category of created, not creator. We're in the category of let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So everything that has breath is anything created. Where does that breath come from? It comes from God breathing life. God is the giver of life. He's the only one who is the living God. He has life in himself, and yet because he has life in himself, Jesus also has life in himself because he is one with God. The Father has life in himself, and he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That's a reference back to Daniel 7. I'd encourage you to go back and read that. That's a picture of the one who comes in judgment to bring in the the final day of the Lord. It also has a reference to Jesus coming to earth as man. Because he came as one of us, he can identify with our sorrow and our suffering, and he is a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. When he takes his sins upon himself, he's able to do that because he became one of us. And then verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Now notice, in this verse, it's not the already not yet kingdom. It's, it's all in the future, right? He didn't say in verse 28, For an hour is coming and is now here. So this is something that awaits us in the future. So pay attention because Jesus is giving us a preview of something yet to come. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That reminds me of what we just read in chapter 5 when Jesus boldly goes to the man who was a paralytic for 38 years lying on a mat and the paralytic begins to mumble something. You know, Jesus says just a real simple question, do you want to be healed? And this guy's got another expectation about how healing works. Oh yeah, I, I, I kind of want to be healed, but every time they stir the water, somebody else beats me in there. And every, Jesus just stops him and says, get up. And he commands him, get up. And at that authoritative sound of Jesus exercising his legitimate authority, which is his because God has given him that authority, the one in whom is life, life itself, he has it in himself, he has the ability to say, get up, and a paralyzed man leaves a mat. 
And at the end of time, he's going to say that booming voice once again, speak loudly and say, get up. And everyone who's buried, everyone who's ever died, every human, man, woman, and child, good, bad, and ugly, is going to obey that voice. As Lazarus does in chapter 11, gives us a preview. Lazarus wrapped up in grave clothes. He's been dead three days. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes hobbling out of the grave, wrapped up with linen and spices for burial. And Jesus gives us a picture of resurrection. And he's telling us now very plainly, very clearly, there's no ambiguity here. This is going to happen in the future when I come back to establish my kingdom. Everyone will be raised. There's resurrection in everyone's future. That sounds great, right? But there's two resurrections. There's a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. There's both good news and bad news in the gospel. You know, if all we give is the good news, people aren't seeing the full picture, right? And we need to grab a hold of this for ourselves. There will be a day when we all stand before the king. And it will be either a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment. What happens to you on that day depends on what happens in your life today. Do you acknowledge Jesus as the only authority from God as the only means of salvation, as your only hope, as God's love gift to a world that stands condemned apart from him. And if you do, then get excited because we're going to celebrate communion in just a moment. And remember that he is the victorious, conquering king. He's defeated sin in the grave, and he reigns forever. But if today there's any ambiguity in your mind and you're thinking, you know, actually, I, I think I'm the master of my own destiny, I think I determine the course of my life. I don't think I want to follow Jesus and submit to him. Then I'm warning you today, friend, there, there is a coming resurrection of judgment that awaits you. And you have your brief days on this earth to submit to him as your Lord and Savior and taste that abundant life today or else there is a very painful future that awaits you. And that's the bad news that we need to bring to a world that would like to just leave out all the bad parts and keep the good parts, right? Now, Jesus is not saying that there is a salvation by faith on the one hand and then a salvation by works. Don't be confused by this last verse that says, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It's not on the basis of the doing good or the doing evil that we go down one of those resurrection paths. Those are just the fruit of whether you have been saved by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone. And so if you have, then there's fruit in your life. You can't just say, Jesus, I acknowledge you as Lord and Savior of my life, and I submit to you, and now I'm going to go do my own thing and completely ignore you. That makes absolutely no sense. There is an allegiance and an obedience that comes with bowing a knee to him and declaring Jesus is Lord. It flows from that gift that he has given us freely through his son on the cross. And so those works will be a measure at the end of time of those who await a resurrection of life and those who stand for a resurrection of judgment. 
Some tough teaching here that Jesus is bringing, not just to first century Jews, but to us today as well. But something that we need to grab a hold of and bring to a world that needs to know the truth of Jesus. And so that first section, all authority is God's authority. This final section talks about the glory and the witnesses of that glory. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my will, not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Now, I want you to, uh, if you've got, you got a pen, if you're take, taking notes here, or else just make a mental note, there's at least five examples of witnesses that Jesus mentions in this last section that we're going to look at. Witnesses, think about a courtroom scene. If you're going to have people come and testify about an event, each of these witnesses testifies of who Jesus is. And yet the condemnation for the Jews is that you've missed every single one of these five witnesses that testify of who Jesus is. So before he gets into the the list, he starts by saying, uh, I can cut, you know, he's, he's basically saying, I, I can understand if you're saying that my testimony of who I am is not sufficient. A person can't have that uh, level of legitimacy in and of himself, at least in your mind, is what he's saying to these Jewish leaders. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Jesus has just come through a section describing who that other is, namely, God himself. God himself testifies that Jesus has all the authority and is due all the glory and has life in himself and brings salvation and judgment to everyone. He'll unpack that a little bit more in a moment. But now he goes into another one of the witnesses. Verse 33. You sent to John, John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, a guy like John, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So there is a testimony that comes from John. In fact, I'll, let, me, let me refresh your memory. If you want to hear some of John's testimony, you can go back to chapter 2. Here's some of what John testifies of Jesus. Verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came... Oh, I'm sorry, that's, that's chapter 1. Let me get to the right chapter here. <laughs> Three thirty-one. That's the right. That's where I'm at. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this: that God is true. For he whom God sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John himself testified of Jesus, giving us a preview of chapter 5. All authority is in God's hands and he gives it to the Son. Life is in God's hands and he gives it to Jesus. Your hope is in Jesus alone. John testified of this and yet the Jewish people of, that Jesus is condemning here in chapter 5 and us today perhaps didn't see and recognize the true testimony that John brought. But verse 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, not just John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So there's the second witness, the works that Jesus is doing, including the miracles, the signs and wonders, the lives transformed, people getting raised up from a mat, an official son being healed by the word of Jesus going out, water turned to wine. These are examples of the works, but not the only works, because really the, the ultimate work that these all point to is the new life, the new creation in the Son, sins forgiven, lives reoriented. And the very works themselves testify that Jesus is the glory of God and speaks with the authority of God. So there's at least two witnesses that are testifying of Jesus. And then verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. God himself testifies that Jesus is his glory revealed. You know, he did it audibly on the day of Jesus' baptism. As the the Spirit of God descends like a dove and a voice from heaven is heard declaring, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God himself literally testified of who Jesus is. And then in many other ways, testifies of that Jesus is his glory revealed through the Old Testament scriptures. And that's the next section that Jesus points to as a testimony of who he is. Verse 39, you search the scriptures. Sounds good. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's the fourth witness of Jesus, the Old Testament scriptures. And you've got a picture of these religious people who are spending their time with their noses buried in a book about Jesus. And they begin to put hope in the book and miss the fact that Jesus is standing right here in front of them. They've they've become distracted by the revelation of Jesus to the point where they can't see Jesus. Is this a risk that could exist today? Usually I feel like we've got the opposite problem, right? Like people, please open your Bibles. Read the revelation of Jesus. It's God's gift to us to show us who Jesus is. Open it. Read it. Get it in you. That's why at our church, 
we take some time to read the Bible every Sunday and talk about it. Because I want to make sure you're getting a good weekly dose that gets you charged up to get your own daily dose in the other six days of the week. And hopefully you're opening this not just in your own private devotional time, but as a family, as husbands and wives, in the life group that you're a part of, in the ministry team that you serve with, that you're saying, let's go to God's word together. But as you do that, don't make the mistakes of the Pharisees where you begin to worship the Bible because the Bible points to Jesus. It's another 45 degree angle mirror that you look at it just long enough so that you see the glory of God revealed in Jesus. And you worship him. And the Pharisees, although they had the Old Testament scriptures, their noses were buried in it, it ended up becoming a form of idolatry for them where they were worshiping the revelation as if it was God. And they missed Jesus standing right there before them. Refusing to come to Jesus that they may have eternal life. And Jesus makes this statement. What do you think about verse 41? I do not receive glory from people. Well, well, you know, brother, brother Jim, worship team members, isn't that what we were just doing today, like giving glory to him? He doesn't receive glory from people. What does he mean by that? All glory belongs to God alone. And Jesus is beginning to set up a, a discussion of human glory versus God's glory. You know, human glory is what we go after in this life, right? I want to be recognized. I want to be appreciated. I want to be esteemed. I want to be important. I want to get glory from all you people. And we're all running around doing that same thing, right? I want the, I want the pats on the back. I want the gold stars. I want the affirmation, the applause. And Jesus is saying, none of that matters at all to me because none of you have any glory. This human glory, it's a farce. It's an illusion. All glory is God's glory. And Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. If you love God, you put him first. You ascribe all glory to him alone. You see that all authority is his alone. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You know, when we, when we praise God, the beautiful thing is that he receives our praises. And so we can delight in glorifying him. He receives that because really we're reflecting his own glory back to him. We're acknowledging him as the glorious one that he is. And that's the beauty of praise. It's the one activity that we do that gets glory in the right place. A lot of the other times in our life are wasted because we're looking for human glory, either trying to give it or receive it. And God does graciously receive the glory that we give him, but he doesn't need it. There's nothing that we do in praise that adds to his glory. He's already glorious whether or not anyone is worshiping him. There's nothing that's added to him by our glorifying him. And yet it's our opportunity to participate in that glory. That's because of the love of God. 
The problem with the Pharisees, they didn't have the love of God in their hearts. God creates because he's so loving and so awesome and so powerful that he delights in accepting us into that love. And as we recognize that, we glorify him and praise him and worship him for who he really is. And we bask in that love and share it with one another. For the Pharisees, that wasn't the case. They were receiving glory from one another, seeking glory from one another. And that's an empty, hollow, religious activity that brings no lasting joy, hope, or life. There's a caution to us here in this text. Finally, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. And he uses Moses to speak of the whole Old Testament. So that's the final witness of Jesus, the Old Testament scriptures. Moses himself. If you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? At least five witnesses. Maybe you detected even more in that passage that we've read together. But Jesus is saying over and over again, there's all these witnesses. What are they testifying of? What's on trial here? It's really the location of authority and glory, and it all resides in God alone and in his Son whom he sent into this earth the one that we worship, the one that we celebrate. Once you get a hold of that and you have ears that hear and a heart that believes, that's the path to eternal life. And it begins today and it lasts forever. So today as we take communion, let me ask you, do you have that resurrection hope alive in your heart? When you think about those two resurrections that await all humans, when Jesus' voice of authority speaks and he says, get up, And you know with confidence that you look forward to a resurrection of life because your faith is in Jesus alone and you receive that gift of salvation that's yours because of the cross. Then we're going to celebrate together. And if today there's some fear or some apprehension or some doubt in your heart and when you're thinking about that resurrection of judgment, you don't know if that awaits you then today I'd love the opportunity to pray with you that you can have the full assurance and confidence of knowing that you are a son and a daughter of the king. It's not by mistake that you're here today. God is drawing you to himself, allowing you to hear the very words of Jesus speaking directly to your heart, saying today is the day that you experience new life. Give it all up to him. Stop trying to build your own kingdom Be your own authority. Receive glory to yourself. Instead, recognize him for who he is. And this will be a day that we celebrate and rejoice with you. So if you're a believer, I'm going to, at this time, uh, dismiss you to go to the tables and take the elements of communion, uh, the bread, which symbolizes God's, Jesus' body, and the blood, which is uh, his blood, the symbol of his blood. So go ahead and, and take those elements, and then we'll return to our seats and give thanks together in just a moment. The next chapter that we'll be looking at next week, John chapter 6, is around the topic of Jesus as the bread of life. And so I'm just going to read one verse out of, out of the, the, give you a preview of next week because it ties in really well with communion today. Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
Truly, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, you know, at our church, we don't believe that, you know, that these symbolic elements, you know, somehow mystically become the actual literal body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. But they do point us to and remind us of his sacrifice on the cross. They remind us of the truth of John 6, that Jesus is the bread of life. He's the one that God has sent to give us the, the sustenance, the hope that we need, life that lasts forever. And so as we take the bread and the cup today, we remember his broken body, his shed blood, and we look forward to his coming return as our king. Let's give thanks and praise now together. Jesus, we worship you as our king. We thank you that all authority is yours. All, all glory is yours. We thank you for ears to hear and hearts to believe that you are who you say you are. Be glorified in our lives. God, we thank you for your presence here in this room. We thank you for your broken body, your shed blood. Thank you that you raise paralyzed people up from their mats. You raise up sinners from their place of judgment and dissatisfaction. You set us on our feet. You put your joy in our hearts. You give us hope for this life and the life to come. We give you thanks and praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have one, it's been a busy, action-packed Sunday, praying for graduates, taking communion together, uh, announcing a, a, a venue change coming up in two weeks, so lots of things happening. We got one more exciting thing to do, so I'm going to dismiss you to go get your kids from kids' ministry, and then in about five minutes, we're going to meet in the pool. We have a couple of baptisms happening today, so if you're able to stay, yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. Uh, this is another celebration of new life in Christ and be great to uh, fill the, the bleachers in there. It, it won't take real long. We've got, I think, two or three baptisms to take place. So um, we'll get you out of here in about 15, 20 minutes. But go ahead and get your kids from Kids Ministry so that they can all participate and then we'll meet in the pool in just five minutes. God bless.